going to open this morning's text. If you, if you follow along in your Bible, we're going to be going into 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you have not been here, and I know many of you probably have not because uh, this is your first service or one of the few, we are doing a series called Warning Signs. And this morning's message is titled Poison Control. Poison control. Our series has been uh, very personal. It's, it's talking about things that are warning signs that you need to pay attention to in your spiritual walk. And the background that we have been using for this series has been the life of David. So we've got a timeline of David's life that we've been using each week. And we've just been progressing from the time David was born. And here we are. And this week we are at 978 B.C. And this week we're going to be talking about Absalom's rebellion. Now, there's going to be a lot of mouthfuls of words and names this week. I don't often give this disclaimer, but I will this morning. If you don't pay attention, you will be lost. You will have no idea what I'm talking about because there's a lot of names. uh, There's a lot of people that I'm going to be referring to this morning, and I, I simply don't have time to teach all of it. It's going to be long enough as it is, and this morning's message has a lot of important people, and I'm going to tell a story from the beginning to the end of my message that is going to involve all of these people, and I want you to catch on to it, but it's going to be difficult If in the beginning you don't pay attention to who the characters are. There's going to be several of them. And they're all going to be in the family of David. Now when you look at this timeline. We've been looking at David's life. And things seemed like they were going David's way for a long time. When we began this series. David was protecting his daddy's sheep. Then he was anointed to be the next king of Israel. Then he moved into the palace because Saul invited him into the palace and David joined the worship team. He was the harp player on the palace worship team. He killed a giant. He was eventually made the king. He's been a great warrior. He's been a leader of men. But then something happened a few weeks ago in the story of David and it happened at a place called Ziklag. And ever since Ziklag, the tone of David's story has changed. He's still seeing great victories. When you read his story in the Bible, you will find out that they are still triumphant on the battlefield. David is still a great warrior, and he has been leading great warriors. And they go onto the battlefield, and you you can go and read about all the battles that David is winning. But what I want to focus on this morning is this. While David was victorious in the public arena, he has been failing in his personal battles. Sometimes we show better than we live. Sometimes what we present to other people is more important to us than what we present to God. And and David, in in his personal battles, has seen a civil war break out. That's his personal problem then he saw a beautiful woman and he called for her even though she was another man's wife 
He got her pregnant and had her husband killed. David is winning on the, bub- on the public battlefield, but he's losing in his private bedroom. This story that I'm going to talk to you about, I'm going to take it slow because there's going to be a lot of names that you're not familiar with and I'm going to end this sermon with an illustration that a lot of you have seen so you're just going to pretend like you haven't. And the reason you're going to do that is for the benefit of those who haven't seen it. Okay? So at the end of this sermon, we're going to have an illustration up here on the stage and and some of you that's been here for a long time, you've seen this illustration before. But since I did it last time, there's been a lot of new people came in that have never seen it. And it fits with this sermon so well, I could not get away from it. I really felt like I had to do it. So 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning uh, with verse 15. Now last week, we left off in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And if you were here, there was a prophet named Nathan that came to David, right? And Nathan told David that the baby that was conceived through his affair with Bathsheba was going to die. That's where we're picking up the story this uh, this morning. Verse 15, Then Nathan departed to his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. Stop right there. Who is the wife of Uriah? Bathsheba. I, 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 I mentioned this last week in passing. No, nowhere in the Bible is Bathsheba ever referred to as David's wife. Even though David married her and brought her into the palace, you can ordain things on earth that heaven refuses to ordain. And all through Scripture, this woman is referred to as Uriah's wife. And it, the baby became ill. Verse 16, David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. Does that sound like something a parent would do if their child was sick? Absolutely. Verse 17, so the elders of his house arose and went into him and raised up to him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. He's on a fast. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, indeed, while the child was alive, he spoke to them and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. Verse 19, when David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he went into that house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house. When he had requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is it that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, But when your child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Stop right there. 
This is a very mature way of looking at mourning. As a matter of fact, a lot of times when someone has lost a loved one, this is the reference that I use. Because listen to what David said. He said, I lost my child. There's been a death in the family. I'm wounded deeply by this death. But I'm not going to focus on the things I can't change. This is a very mature way. This, this, this is a way that only believers that have gotten deep into the Spirit can handle death. That's why when Paul said, we don't mourn like those who have no hope. We're different than the rest of the world. When our loved ones pass, we don't mourn like them because we know that we have eternity to look forward to. And that's what David said. He said, I can't go to him, or he can't come back to me, but I can go to him. So I'm going to get up and live life. This is a very mature way of looking at mourning. I'm not going to focus on the stuff I can't change. There's some stuff I've got control over. I'm going to go do that. And what happens in the next verse and in the next couple of chapters is going to change the history of David's life for not, not just right now, but the following generations. Verse 24, David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went in to lay with her. So she bore a son, and she called his name, say that name, Solomon. And the Lord loved Solomon. Okay, this is going to change the destiny of David's life. What just happened here? He lost one son. He had another son. And the destiny of David's life and the generations to come is going to be changed because of what just happened in verse 24. Will you pray with me this morning? And when you pray, would you ask the Lord to touch you specifically with his word? Father God, we pray this morning that your word would go forth in glory, that it will not be hindered, that there will not be a reason, God, that we do not receive from you today, that every heart that is hungry, every mind that is open, and every soul that needs healed is going to find exactly what they need today in God's house. Thank you for this word. In Jesus' name, the church said, Amen. David went up on the roof instead of going to battle. Yes? When the kings go to war, David went on the roof. And ever since he went up on that roof, there have been events that took place that's been out of David's control. Nathan, the prophet, comes to David and says, God has forgiven you. Isn't that something? That when you sin, God says, I will forgive you. Isn't that glorious this morning? We rejoice that God forgives us of our sins. However, he said, God forgave you, but your house will never forget this. Your house will always be in turmoil, and the baby that was conceived is going to die. Which takes us, before I can get deeper into this, I have to take you into a lesson that immature Christians struggle with. Are you ready for this? The first point of my lesson this morning is, you can be pardoned from sin, but still owe the penalty of the consequences. Now, immature Christians struggle with this because they go out and rip and roar Friday and Saturday night and come to church on Sunday and beg for forgiveness and think everything's supposed to be okay. But that ticket's still there. That car you hit is still damaged. That person that you cussed out still don't think you a Christian. All those things that you did are still waiting on you. When you cussed your boss out Friday, you still don't have a job. Just because God forgave you does not mean the company did. 
So, so immature Christians struggle with this. So just because God grants forgiveness doesn't mean you don't have to pay the penalty for your sins. You can be incredibly sorry. You can cry. You can mourn. You can pray. Like David, you can fast. But you are still going to reap exactly what you have sown. And trust me, trust me, if you think your family's jacked up, just wait until we unpack these next couple of chapters. Because I'm going to tell you some stuff this morning that comes straight out of the Word of God that days of our lives couldn't invent. Let's jump right into it. 2 Samuel chapter 13, beginning with verse 13. Now David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar. And Amnon, her half-brother, stop right there. Amnon is Tamar. I told you I'm going to give you a lot of names. Amnon is Tamar's half-brother. And he fell desperately in love with her. Verse 2, Amnon became so obsessed with Tamar that he became ill. She was a virgin, and Amnar, Amnon thought he could never have her. Well, yeah. I mean, it's your sister. Do we really got to tell you that? You can't have your sister? And people talk about West Virginians. But wait, there's more. Verse 3 says, Amnon had a very crafty friend, his cousin Jonadab. Now stop right there because this is a scripture that I use sometimes when I preach at like youth camps. When they ask me to come preach at youth camps because this is a scripture that is speaking to us about the influence that friends can have over your life. Okay, Because he said Amnon had a very crafty friend. It was his cousin, but it was his friend. And because Jonadab, Jonadab hears what Amnon wants. Amnon wants his sister. Jonadab gives him a plan. What a great friend. Amnon listened, Amnon listened to Jonadab's advice. Okay, here's what he said. He said, the best thing for you to do is act like you're sick. Tell your dad, David, to send your sister, Tamar, to cook something for you. He wanted some chicken noodle soup. And while you got her alone in your bedroom, he listened to the wrong advice, and it ripped David's family apart. Hear me. He pretends to be sick. His father comes to check on him. He said, what I really need is some, some of Tamar's chicken noodle soup. David sends Tamar to his bedside. When Tamar comes in with the soup, he grabs her. He takes advantage of her. He overpowers her. And he takes her virginity. Tamar runs and tells her whole brother. He's her half-brother. She runs and tells her whole brother, Absalom, what happened. And something festers in Absalom's heart. S stay with me. 
Two years go by. Say two years. Two years go by and Absalom throws a party. And he invites his half-brother Amnon. Two years later. While at the party, he gets Amnon drunk. And he talks a bunch of his friends into jumping on Amnon and killing him. Once he gets him in a vulnerable position... He kills his brother, and then he knows that he's probably going to have repercussions for doing what he did, so Absalom runs away. He leaves the kingdom. I want you to focus on what he says here in verse 37. David mourned many days for his son Amnon. Absalom fled to his grandfather, Talmai, son of uh, 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 Amahud, and the king of Geshur. He stayed there in Geshur for three years. Say three years. And King David, now reconciled to Amnon's death, longed to be reunited with his son Absalom. Okay, pay attention. Since David went up onto that roof, I want you to pay attention to everything he's lost. First thing, he had Uriah, one of his most loyal servants, killed. Then the baby died. Then his daughter got assaulted by his own son. His son got killed by another son. And now Absalom, his son, is in exile. Just look at what one decision cost David. A man of God. We're not talking about some heathen that did not know God's spirit. We're talking about a man who the Bible says was the apple of God's eye. This stuff happens in churches. We're always preaching about what happens in the bars and out there. But what happens when... It comes home. What happens when it happens in Christian homes? Absalom is now in exile. David has lost one son. He's got a defiled, hurt, traumatized daughter. And now he's got one son that is dead. All because of what happened in that bedroom. Absalom's problems started when he drank the poison of offense. Pay attention to what I just said. The Bible says Absalom waited two years to throw that party. He stayed offended at his brother for two years. Then he killed his brother. And now he has been in exile for three years. How many of you believe that the offense in his heart has gotten better over those three years? The answer to that is no. As a matter of fact, it always gets worse if you don't deal with it. So it's been five years since Amnon attacked Tamar. Five years. But Absalom has not healed at all. As a matter of fact, he's actually gotten worse. And even though Amnon is dead and David misses his son, he loves Absalom. He brings Absalom back to Jerusalem. Are you, are you tracking my story? He brings Absalom back to Jerusalem. Absalom gets married. He has children. Listen to what the Bible says about this cat. The Bible said he was praised as the most handsome man in Israel. I'll tell you something that ain't fair. The Bible said his hair weighed five pounds. That ain't fair. He's good looking and got five pounds of hair. 
The reason I bring that up is because life should have been good for Absalom. He's got a wife. He's got kids. His father, who loves him, brought him back home. Life should have been, life should have been good, but he couldn't get over the offense. He missed his blessings because he couldn't see. Another six years passed. Now it's been a total of 11 years since Tamar was assaulted. But Absalom never forgot. And now he is about to fulfill Nathan's prophecy. Do you remember Nathan, the prophet that came to David and said, Your house will be divided from within itself? Absalom starts making plans to steal the kingdom from his father David. And he did it with two ways. The first thing that he did was he would wait by the gates. And when people would come in to talk to King David, Absalom would say, well, if I was in charge around here, I'd make time for you. If I was the king, I would handle it differently than he's going to handle it. He's leaving you out here all day in this hot sun and isn't paying any attention to you. If I was the king, things would be different around here and here's what the Bible says about Absalom he stole the hearts of the people of Israel and once he had stole their hearts the second thing he did was easy it says Absalom sent secret messengers to the tribes of Israel to stir up a rebellion against David he was charismatic he was good looking he was charming girls better watch out you might want to go for the nerd. Just saying. Usually a good-looking Absalom ends up working for that nerd someday, but I'm just saying. Do you know why Absalom is still in David's kingdom? Because 11 years ago, he believes David should have handled Amnon himself. He believes in his heart that David should have had Amnon killed. He wouldn't have had to have done it. And he would now not be feeling the way he's feeling. He would have had justice through his king, through his father. And David hears that the kingdom is in trouble, that Absalom has gained the support of all the people. And David loves Jerusalem too much. He doesn't want to see it brought down with war. So David gathers everybody that's loyal to him and splits. He leaves town. He said, if Absalom wants it, I'm going to give it to him. I can't bear to lose another son and I can't bear to see my city burned to the ground these people don't deserve this and so David and he gathers his troops that's loyal to him and they leave the Bible says in 2 Samuel chapter 16 beginning with verse 20 hmm. first of all Absalom is about to become the king but he don't know how to make the announcement he's going to take the throne you gotta this is before Facebook there's no Instagram story for this. He has to make the announcement that, hey, I'm the king. But he don't know how to do it because he's never been king. So verse 20 says this, Absalom turned to Ahithophel and asked him, what should I do next? Ahithophel told him, go and sleep with your father's concubines. He's left them here to look after the palace. Then all of Israel will know that you have insulted your father beyond hope of reconciliation and they will throw their support to you. So they set up a tent on the palace roof where everybody could see it. I told you days of our life could not make this up. 
Absalom went in and had sex with his father's concubines on the roof. Stop right there. Where David's trouble start? We're back on another roof from fruit from David. Things that you do reverberate through the generations. Absalom went in and had sex with his father's concubines. Absalom followed Ahithophel's advice. Pay attention to this next phrase. It's going to be very important in the rest of my sermon. Just as David had done. This man's name is Ahithophel. Ahithophel. Get that in your spirit. Ahithophel. Just as David had done. For every word Ahithophel spoke seemed as wise as though it had come directly from the mouth of God. In other words, this man was such a genius. Ahithophel was such a war genius that his advice was compared to the very word of God. To the very voice of angels. And pay attention to the fact that before he worked for Absalom, he worked for David. Just as David had done. David followed his advice. Before he was a counselor for Absalom, he was a counselor for David. Now I'm going to get into the outline. I've got three things I want to give you. The dangers of offense poisoning. Okay? Absalom's trouble began when he let offense get in his heart. He got poisoned by offense. There's three dangers that I want to share with you this morning about offense poisoning. Offense does not live in the heart alone. It brings other problems with it. I can tell by your silence that I'm striking a nerve. One of the greatest strategies that Satan has is to convince believers that they are immune to demonic influence. Now, I want to I clarify something. A spirit-filled believer walking in obedience to Christ is absolutely protected from the enemy. However, a carnal, disobedient Christian can have their spirit protected while their soul is being wrecked. Because you open doors and invite in trouble. And so you can come to church and love Jesus on Sunday, but love other stuff the rest of the week. A, not only people who are disobedient, but a Christian who has encountered trauma. A Christian that grew up in dysfunction and never learned how to excise the spirits from the past can grow up and fall in love with Jesus in their spirit, but their soul, their soul be carnal. So a Christian needs to understand that you can still be influenced by the devil even if you don't love him anymore. Drinking the poison that you intended for someone else. There's three ways you do this. Drinking the poison you intended for somebody else. We're talking about poison control. There are a lot of problems you cause for yourself when you live offended. You blame everybody else, but really it's your problem. You intend for these feelings of aggression you have to hurt the person that hurt you. But you end up drinking your own poison. There's three ways you do this. The first one is called cynicism. Is it okay if I just stay real calm and, and, and deliberate? Will you still receive from me if I'm not swinging from the chandelier? 
Because i got to teach you a thing, okay? Cynicism. You know what cynicism is? It, it means you believe the worst about somebody. You can be married to somebody and believe the worst about them. You can have children and believe. You can have mothers and fathers and believe the worst about them. Offense toward other people makes you wish bad things would happen to them. You want them to suffer the way you suffered. You want them to hurt the way they hurt you. And here's the problem. Are you ready for me to go deep into this? You can't receive blessings from anyone you're offended at. Because you don't think that anything positive can come from them. Mm. If you get offended at a preacher, good luck receiving from the word they preach. Because any blessing that the word would give to you, you won't receive it because you are too cynical to believe that that preacher can give you anything. Can I go deeper? A person who harbors offense in their marriage will not be able to reap any blessing from the marriage because you're cynical that that person can give you anything positive. So what happens is your marriage becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I don't feel loved, so you don't get loved. I feel like that they're always against me, so you always feel attacked. Your marriage becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because the way you feel comes back to you. And what you envision is what becomes reality. It's quiet in here. That's cynicism. The second way you drink your own poison is with a critical spirit. A critical spirit is somebody that fault finds and passes judgment on other people but ignores their own flaws. These are the people that hold standards for everybody but them. They like to pick out everybody's sins that they don't have in their life. That's why the church is always real good at attacking certain sin. Because those aren't the ones I have. See, I don't have same-sex attraction. Easy for me to attack abortion. Easy for me to attack being drunk when I don't have the taste for alcohol. But when I start holding other people to their standards that I have set up for them, but I don't live up to the standards that God set for me, guess who's wrong? See, Absalom started criticizing David to the people. Psalms chapter 64 says that bitter words that you point at others becomes arrows that God uses to shoot back at you. That means when you criticize, my God, I gotta go, I gotta go. I didn't mean to, but I got to. When you criticize other people, it opens spiritual doors for enemies to attack you. Oh, oh can I go there? So that means, believer, if you believe in heaven and hell, if you believe in the spirit realm, if you believe that there's an enemy of the soul that's trying to attack you, don't you ever criticize somebody else. Don't you start criticizing somebody else's divorce because you're opening doors in your own marriage. Don't start criticizing somebody else's kids that are on drugs. 
Don't you start saying, I'll tell you one thing, if that was in my house, we wouldn't. No, 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 no. You are opening a door for attack to come into your house. Don't you let that critical spirit raise up inside of you. Be careful because you will put a target on yourself. You'll put a target on your marriage. You'll put a target on your children. And if you don't believe me, you better know that when you start lashing out at others, the Bible says whatever measure, whatever size cup you are judging them in is the exact same size cup that God's going to judge you with. So go ahead, raise that standard, but you better pray you are able to reach it yourself. Proverbs 6 tells us about the dangers of being trapped with our own mouths. The Bible uses the word snared. King James uses the word snared with your own words. Do you know what that means? That means some of you believers who have been drinking your own poison, Thinking you're killing somebody else. Help me, Jesus, because these people ain't going to. You've been drinking your own critical spirit poison, thinking you're killing other folks. But you don't know that you have opened doors into your own spirit and damaged your effectiveness to pray yourself clean. L listen to what the Bible tells us. Some people don't have what they've been praying for. Like you're praying for your unsaved loved ones and they ain't getting saved. You're praying for financial miracles and they ain't happening. You're praying for healed relationships and you haven't gotten your answer. Can I, can I just slow down for a minute and tell you, you need to go back and think about all the things you've criticized other people about and repent for some of the ways you put your mouth on them. Because if you've treated other people unchristian, like if you have attacked them, whether in public or in behind closed doors, you need to repent of criticism that you spoke over their lives because those words have trapped you. It's poison that you intended to kill somebody else with and you drank it yourself. You don't believe me? Paul asked the Galatians, how did you start out in the spirit, but now you are in the flesh, biting and devouring each other? That's what happens when a church has a critical spirit loose. They bite and devour each other. I've preached in those churches. I refuse to pastor that church, but I have preached in those churches. And you need to realize, when you talk to somebody, they may have a critical spirit, so you need to take what they say with a grain of salt. Asking an ex-husband about his ex-wife probably isn't the best character reference. Asking somebody that got fired about the company probably is not going to give you great insight into how that company runs. You know why? Once you become offended, it is impossible for you to be impartial. Because you hear with offended ears, you see with offended eyes, and every word you speak is through an offended tongue. And you cannot be impartial. And be offended. It's impossible. Which leads us to the third poison. And I'm going to spend the rest of the time talking about this. Bitterness. you got a cynic. You've got a critic. And you've got a bitter, nasty, 
crankified saint who loves Jesus but is mean as a junkyard dog. How did we get here? I'm, gonna, I'm glad you asked. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15. Write this sermon, that, or write this scripture down. Take a picture of it. Underline it. Put asterisks beside of it. You need this scripture in your life. Hebrews 12 and 15. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Did you Stop right there and, and, and notice what it said. If you don't look after each other, why are you asking God to give you grace? Why are you trying to get something you refuse to give? None of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. If you would, leave that scripture up until I go to the next scripture, please. Because I want to break this scripture down. Bitterness is when we let things on the outside contaminate what we have on the inside yes that's why it's called a root do you do you know any nowhere in your bible does it say a root of lust nowhere in your bible does it say a root of adultery nowhere in your bible does it say a root of murder the only thing in the bible that says has a root is bitterness bitterness has a Root. That means that's something that is planted on the inside of you. I just did a whole lot of preaching right there. And that also means it won't just go away. Have you ever met, especially a man, they get older in life, and they used to be a sweet man, they used to be compassionate, and now they are just angry and bitter and hateful all the day long? There was a root put in them at some point by someone or something and that root has never been taken care of because it won't just go away. You can pull the leaves off of a tree but if you don't kill the... You'll never get rid of it if you don't get rid of the root. And, and pay attention to what this scripture says. Pay attention. It says, watch out that the poisonous root of bitterness grow up to trouble who? Who? Oh, bitterness doesn't trouble them. It troubles you. Nobody's teaching this stuff. So we got a wild, out-of-control generation that's just all over Twitter making all kinds of condescending remarks about everybody and everything. I, I'm just going to, I just say what's on my mind. Maybe you shouldn't. Have you ever thought about that? Well, I'll just give them a piece of my mind. Listen, some of us don't have enough to give away. If you don't have enough to spare, don't be giving everybody a piece, okay? Pay attention. It says bitterness will trouble you. Your bitterness doesn't make them lose a minute of sleep. But it poisons you. You intended for them to drink the bitter poison. But you're the one that swallowed it. A root of bitterness is barely noticeable in the seed stage. But as it grows... It becomes more visible. How do I know? Because it says when it grows up to trouble you, it corrupts who? Who? So it's inside of you, but it's corrupting everybody else. Some of you, we're getting ready to go into the holidays, and some of you are already having to take Prozac. Ambien, something. Horse tranquilizer, something. Just get me through 
the next five weeks, Lord Jesus. Either come back and rapture me home or give me the strength to go to this family function and not kill everybody there. Like, I love Grandma's ham, but if my brother is there, can I just get a doggy bag? Some of you know what it's like to be around a bitter person. Some of you know what it's like because the Bible says that it grows up inside of you, but it troubles everybody else. It corrupts. It troubles you, but it corrupts everybody else. Now, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 3. We're going to go back to that rooftop because this is where all the trouble started. It says, David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba? The daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, we have focused a lot on Uriah the Hittite, right? We focused a lot on he is, she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. But what I want to focus on right now for my story is she is the daughter of Eliam. She's the daughter of Eliam. Why is that important, Pastor? Because Eliam was son to a man called Ahithophel. Bathsheba was the granddaughter of Ahithophel. And Ahithophel watched David seduce his granddaughter and had her husband, Uriah the Hittite, murdered. You would think that Ahithophel, you would think that David marrying Bathsheba would have been enough to get Ahithophel on his side. Because he married her and he made her what's known as the preferred queen. Which means she had preferred status over the other queens. Which is a whole other sermon. But she was the preferred queen. Not only was she the preferred queen, she had a son named Solomon which was going to be the next king. That means Ahithophel was the great grandfather of King Solomon. Remember when the baby died, Bathsheba had another son. That son is set up to be the new king of the whole kingdom. And Ahithophel would have seen his great-grandson rule from the throne. But bitterness will cause you to miss the blessings that God puts in your life. Great things were in store for this family. In spite of David's sins, God was still going to do great things for this family. And Ahithophel would have been part of it. But he could not let go of the bitterness he had toward David. And that's why when Absalom said, what should we do? He said, I know what you should do. You should sleep with your father's concubines in public. And then you should put out a death sentence for your, for your daddy. You should have him killed so he can never come back here and take your throne again. We know that Ahithophel hated David. We know that Ahithophel tried to get David murdered. But you know what happens to Ahithophel? Keep reading the Bible. His bitterness led to hatred. Hatred led to a murderous spirit. And when he could not get David killed, he killed himself. And instead of seeing his family's generational blessings... He died at his own hands because bitterness kills you. (laughs) 
There's not, a, there's not a story in the Bible I can think of that teaches the terrible repercussions of unforgiveness better than this one. Because when you refuse to let go, you have drank the poison you intended to kill them with. And bitterness prevents you from receiving God's blessings, not them. They're living their best life, and you are still mad about 1997. They have moved on. They've got three kids. they got a boat. They spend on the weekends on the lake. And you are seething and foaming at the mouth every time you see the post on Facebook. Number one, get off their Facebook. Number two, get that root out of you. I have offended people in the course of my life. I'm going to be honest with you. Even as a pastor, I've probably offended a lot more people as a pastor than I ever did. And none of it was intentional. None of it was ever intentional. But... But I've, I've offended a lot of people with the things I've said. I've offended other people by things I didn't say. I offend a lot of people by my tone. I, I, I mean, I work, I try, but the way I come across, it's gruff and it seems condescending and people get offended at it. But I have done things that have offended people and then I've not done things that's offended people. I've got, offend, I've got people offended at me for not showing up at events I didn't even know I was invited to. It, it's just part of, it's, it, the list is too long to mention. But what I want to talk about is the spirit of offense. Because when you get offended by somebody, it poisons ordinary conversations. It poisons you from ever giving the benefit of the doubt. When you are offended at your husband, when you are offended at your wife, when you're offended at the government, when you're offended at the pharmacist, when you're offended at your co-worker or your boss, you don't give them the benefit of the doubt. You always judge everything they say as something that is negative towards you. And it's not them that's the fault. It's the root that you have inside of you. You, you no longer give them grace not to be perfect. But you, don't, you will overlook your imperfections in a moment. Taking offense assumes the worst. If you take offense at your brother or your sister, your husband, your wife, your mother, your father, your children, if you take offense, you start assuming the worst. And you start looking for reasons to justify what you already believe about them. So when they don't text... It just confirms what you already believe. When they don't call, it confirms what you don't believe. When they say that thing in that tone, it confirms what you already believe. But it's not on them. The root is inside of you. And too many Christians walk around carrying offense like a badge of honor. And they don't know how to let go. So I'm going to help you, okay? Have you ever heard the phrase, I said okay. Some of y'all are like, no, I've got my offense, and I'm happy, preacher. Just leave me at be. I will maybe think about it after Christmas, but until Christmas, I am not buying them a thing. <laughs> Have you ever heard the phrase, I take offense to that? You ever heard that? Maybe you've said it. That's because offense can only be taken. It can't be given. If you refuse to take it, I can't offend you. I, 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 I can give it to you all day long, but if you refuse, if you refuse to take it, and there are people out there, and you've met them, they live unoffendable. And you think 
they're really dumb. Like nothing ever bothers them. They just walk around smiling all the time. They're happier than you are. It's because they have decided that whatever happens around them is not going to corrupt what's inside of them. So I can give you something, but you, you need to learn how to refuse to take it. It's a matter of choice. There's two things that you do that lets the root of bitterness in. Number one, holding on to hurts. Number two, living in self-pity. Oh, half of my amen committee just resigned right there. You don't know what I've been through. I don't know what you've been through. You don't know what I've been through. But I'll tell you this, you don't have to live in self-pity no matter what it is. Because bitterness poisons our attitudes, our thoughts, and our relationships. It says that it, it corrupts you, or it corrupts many, because it's, it's living inside of you. So your relationships get poisoned. Your thoughts get poisoned. Nobody can get through to you. You ever tried to convince somebody you really like them? And they don't think nobody likes them? Well, the kids don't ever call, and, and pastor's never around, and, and sister Amanda don't ever speak to me, and, and, and my neighbors shut the door when I walk down the street. Maybe there's a draft. Why's everything got to be about you? But that your thoughts get poisoned. You walk into the room and everybody stopped talking. I guess they were talking about me. Maybe they were planning your birthday party. Maybe they were telling each other their social security numbers and you don't need to know it. Why does everything have to be about you? Because your thoughts get poisoned by bitterness. But can I tell you, bitterness has never healed a broken heart. Bitterness has never built a ministry. Bitterness has never put a broken family back together. And bitterness has never won a rebellious child. A saint of God coming to the house of God being uh, labeled a bitter person, you are going to have a hard time getting your children to want to serve God if that's what serving God looks like. Now y'all bitter at me. You got to forgive me. The Bible says so. The second thing you're going to do Instead of drinking the poison that you intended for somebody else, the second problem is taking the poison somebody else created. Amnon started this whole mess because he took bad advice. Absalom made it worse by taking bad advice. Absalom got angry. And when he didn't deal with his anger, anger grows up into bitterness. And bitterness left unchecked becomes revenge. So let me tell you what happens when you take a poison someone created. You get a murderous spirit. Now I know what you're thinking. Not me. I would never kill anybody. I'm not talking about taking a knife out and shanking somebody. But an offended person may not physically kill anybody. But they will murder their reputation. Oh, they'll kill their affiliations. Because they will find your friends and your other loved ones and start criticizing you to them and poison them against you. Oh, you don't believe me? Do you know there are people out there in the world right now that don't like you and have never met you? I know it's true about me. I'm that guy. I, I'm, I pastor that church. I, I, listen, I, I, there are people out there right now that have a negative reflection of me, and they have never met me. They've never heard one of my sermons, but because something you said, 
Something somebody that left this church years ago said, they have been poisoned against me and they don't even know who I am. So they have a murderous spirit toward me. They're not trying to... That somebody say, well, I'm going to go to Promise Victor. I wouldn't go there for love nor money. Oh, you don't know what goes on in that church. Well, you don't either. You ain't never even been there. Well, you don't know how that, you know what that pastor says. You don't either. You've never heard him preach. But you have a murderous spirit, and you're trying to kill the reputation of that person. Why is that so important, Pastor? I'm glad you asked. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. Burn these scriptures in your brain. These six things the Lord hates. But God is love. Yes, He is. And He loves you too much to let this hateful stuff live in you. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to Him. A proud look. You better smile. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. Hello, America and your abortion laws. A heart that devises wicked plans. Hello, some of you that's already thinking, how are you going to get revenge at Thanksgiving dinner? Feet that are swift at running to evil. Verse 19, a false witness who speaks lies. And the last one stings a little. One who sows discord among brethren. This is the list of seven things that God hates. And although all sin is something that you should worry about, there are some that are particularly grievous to God, and that's this list. It really means He hates it. That's not hyperbole. He really hates these things. Why does He hate them? Because of what they do to us. Because of what it does to the soul. And because of the way it makes us treat one another. Who, by the way... Every person were made in the image and likeness of God. It's not just you. It's not just the tongue talkers. It's not just the Pentecostals. It's not just people of a certain shade of melody. We're all made in the image and likeness of God. And these seven things make us hateful toward the thing that God loved. Wow. So the church has for years beat the drum on certain sins that we hate. We hate abortion. We hate LGBT. We hate same-sex. We hate people cheating on their husbands and wives. We hate, but what's God hate? Because some of the stuff God hates thrives inside the church. Listen, we talk about God hates those that shed innocent blood because we hate abortion. But did you notice that the Bible puts sowing discord inside the church under the same condemnation as abortion? So some of you would never dream of getting an abortion. But you spend every Sunday having roast preacher for lunch. Listen to me. Listen to me. You need to guard what you say because God hates certain posts on your Facebook. Oh, it's getting quiet in here. It's getting, Pastor's going to sneak out the side door to this, this afternoon. Because listen, there are churches that do things during certain times of the year. Hello, October 31st. And, and you don't agree with it. But what they're doing is not sin. But the minute you put your lips on them, you sin. Y'all not going to help me. Y'all not going to help me. Let's get back to the abortions. We want to preach about abortion. 
Yeah, what they're doing is not sinful. But the minute you post it on your Facebook and put your opinion on them, you're sowing discord. And and that's something God hates. So, so, So you don't like the way somebody does something. They may not be sinning. But the minute you condemn them, God hates that. Uh, So let's talk about the dangers of operating with somebody else's poison. There's two of them. Number one, you take on suffering that you weren't built for. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says he will give you strength for the day. The reason he gives you strength for the day is because he hasn't invited you into tomorrow yet. You might get hit by a bus. The rapture could come. There's a lot of reasons you will not make it to tomorrow. So you don't have strength for tomorrow. You have strength for the day. But here's what you're not promised. You don't have strength for my day. So if you take on poison that was not intended for you, you're liable to die. Hear my heart, moms. You can't take on your children's offense. You can't do it because you don't have the strength for it. God didn't give you the strength to be offended on behalf of your babies and your grandbabies. He didn't give you the strength for that. You're, not, you're taking on suffering you wasn't built for. Should you defend them? Absolutely. But don't let their offense get inside you. Well, their boss does this. How do you know? You've not spent one minute on the job with them. How do you know everything they're telling you is the truth? My baby wouldn't lie. (laughs) Have you met your children? I have. My child's as pure as the driven snow. In the name of Jesus, come out, you lying devil. You cannot take on their offense. You're not built to handle it. Some of you are so weary and beaten down because you are operating with somebody else's poison coursing through your spiritual veins. The second thing is that once you yoke up with somebody else, their poison becomes your poison and their judgment falls on you too. I don't have time to get into this, but there's a man in your Old Testament named, by the name of Korah who rebelled against God's plan. God had put Moses as the pastor of Israel and Korah thought, well, I can be the pastor. So God opened up the earth and let him and everybody that was attached to his offense get swallowed up into the earth. Because you taking on somebody else's poison can be deadly for you. Don't get attached, yoked up with other offended people. You ever, have you ever paid attention to the longer you're around somebody that's offended? That's, maybe they're offended at their spouse. Now all of a sudden, you don't like that jerk either. Have you ever, don't raise your hands, but some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Like you walked into that room and Bill was okay. You walk out and you're like, I don't really like that Bill. I just don't think he's. Some of you were ambivalent toward the government until 2016. And then all the poison that was in the atmosphere, all of a sudden you became a political talking pundit. And you hate this team and you love this team. All because of what you heard and got poisoned with I spent the majority of my life not caring who was in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue because I know my king is on the throne and I am his and he is mine so it was all unimportant but the world made it important and it poisoned a lot of people and their judgment can become I gotta move on 
I want you to hear the words of our master. He says in Luke chapter 17, verse 1, it is impossible, but offenses will come. In other words, he said it's impossible to live on this planet and not face offensive things. People are going to be offensive towards you. But offense has to be taken. It can't be given. You have to decide to be living unoffendable. Things are going to be offensive towards you. It's offensive every time we get groceries. That's offensive. But you can really, I've known people that got so sour over things like that. Trust me, we're all suffering. But I've known people that's gotten so sour over that that they can't see any of the blessings God gives them either. Because they, got, they let that root of bitterness get inside of them. I've pastored people for 25 years now. I tell my other pastors that come to me for advice, I say, listen, ministry is great except for the people. And it's, it's the same way with being a parent. Parenting's great without the kids. Like when all you're doing is reading a book about being a parent, you're like, I got this. Throw the kids in and you're like, what am I doing? So, so, so I've pastored people for 25 years, and believe me, I've been hurt a thousand times. There is, a, there is a statistic that says the average person loses seven significant relationships in their lifetime. Okay, You lose seven significant relationships in a lifetime. A pastor loses seven a year. So why are you praying for people? Pray for pastors who go through a lot of loss in their ministries. I have been hurt a thousand times. I have been misunderstood. I have been misjudged. I have been lied about. I've been gossiped about. I've been turned on. I've been used. You name it. I've had people that I have poured into for years just walk away with no reason and just abandon the ministry. And I've been given multiple opportunities to walk out. And if I was taking on the spirit of offense... It'd be real easy to do. And some of you have seen this illustration before, but you just pretend like you haven't because there's a lot of people here that haven't. I brought a friend with me that's going to help me end this sermon this morning. Aw, there's somebody saying, aw. Aw. Look how cute he is. Oh, y'all in the back, look. Aw. He's so cute. He's so cute. He's got a name. I named him before I brought him to church. Matter of fact, this illustration wouldn't make any sense if I didn't name him. And his name is Grudge. And you know what I'm doing right now? I'm holding a grudge. I like to hold my grudge in my pocket when I go to church so none of y'all can see that I'm holding my grudge. I'm going to need some help for the rest of this sermon. Um, Brad, you're young and virile. Come on up here. Have a seat. Come on, Brad. Come up here. You and me is going to hold a grudge. Nope. Turn around to... Turn around. Yeah, there you go. Turn all the way around. There you go. Because I'm holding my grudge. And, and, and you didn't have nothing to do with this grudge. You didn't even know I was bringing this grudge to church, did you? Nope. Didn't know it until I pulled it out and announced it, right? 
and you didn't have anything to do with it, but that ain't going to stop me from holding it against you. Because now not only am I holding a grudge, I'm holding my grudge against you. And here's the thing. Because we like each other and because we go to church together and, and, and maybe we become friends and maybe, maybe God just gives me the spirit of David and I can pluck strings like you can pluck strings and we get to know each other. So we start spending time together. The closer we get, my grudge can become your grudge. And the stuff that made my grudge all of a sudden start mattering to you. Because you know what the cool part is? Wait right there. Because this gets even better. The longer you wait and you feed that grudge, that grudge gets bigger. And now, there you go. I'm glad you brought your, your grudge to church with you this morning. That's fun, ain't it? It's fun trying to come to church and hear what the preacher says, holding your grudge. It's, 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 it's even more fun when somebody comes by you and you go to shake their hand and they don't shake your hand back. And then that grudge, hang on a minute, because you keep feeding that grudge. Ain't that fun? Ain't it fun coming to church holding your grudge? Because the longer you feed him, the bigger he gets. And, and the more attention you pay to him, he gets bigger and bigger. Now swing, swing back around here, brother. Yeah, there you go, because here, here's what I need you to do. I need, I need to show you that pretty soon your grudge gets so big, it's all you can see. Throw that up on the screen for me if you would. So what happens is you're praying for God to give you things that you need in your life and God puts them right in front of you and you can't even see them because your grudge has gotten so close and is blocking your view of all the things that God blesses your life with. And it's not that God's not hearing your prayers. It's not that God's not answering. You got something in the way. You could have stopped with this. You could have got that root out. You could have dealt with it when it was still manageable. But you kept feeding it. Bringing it with you everywhere you go. Oh, it goes to every family reunion. Some of y'all take this rascal to work with you every day. Wonder why you can't get no work done. You can't even see the computer screen. Here's when my boss didn't give me a raise in 1949. Here's when my coworker brought cookies for everybody but my birthday. And your grudge just keeps growing. Growing and growing. But you know what Hebrews chapter 12 tells me in verse 12? Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by what? Uh Keep reading. Let us lay aside every way. 
and to sin. Run with race. Uh-huh. Therefore, so, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let's lay some stuff aside. It doesn't say all of them are sinful. It just says some of them are holding us back. Because sometimes when our blessing's right in front of us, we can't see it. Because there's some things in our lives we need to lay down. There are some things in our lives that we need to abandon. Lay that grudge down, why don't you, brother, so you can see what God has done in your life. What's standing right in front of you. And if you keep reading Hebrews chapter 12, it says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Looking unto Jesus. Looking unto Jesus. Looking unto Jesus. The exact opposite effect of having that grudge too close is when you get so close to Jesus, if you keep Him close... No matter what's going on behind the scenes, you can't see it because your eyes are looking unto Jesus. Is this resonating with anybody in this church? What do you see now, brother? What do you see? Oh, but the political people said, what do you see? But somebody posted something mean on Facebook. What do you see? Oh, but somebody, uh, somebody voted differently than you did. What do you see? And, and people's got different opinions than you have. What, what do you see? Oh, and your wife didn't treat you exactly the way you wanted to, but what do you see? Oh, so no matter what's going on behind the scenes, What do you see? Wasn't paying any attention to me because all he sees is Jesus. I'm glad that over 23 years of church, I've kept my eyes on Jesus and not quit and ran away every time I got offended. Thank you, brother. Looking unto Looking unto, looking unto the author and the finisher of our faith. Every person in this room has been offended. Jesus said it's impossible to live on this planet and not face offense. But I got a question to ask for you, and then I'm going to give you a recipe on the wall. I've been giving you, I've been giving you a way out of these things. And I've got an antidote for the poison, okay? But before I do that, I want to ask you, could it be what they did to you is not as big as you've made it out to be, but you have focused on it so long that it's all you can see? Pastor, you don't know what they did to me. No, I don't. But is it that big? Or is it just all you look at? Looking unto... If I keep my eyes on Jesus, all that other stuff doesn't matter. He's my healer. He's my deliverer. He is my portion. He's my strong tower. The righteous run into him, and there they are, safe. 
He's my all in all. He is my alpha and omega, my beginning and my end. But I don't always put my focus on Jesus. Sometimes I magnify the wrong things. Looking unto, some of you have been looking at your grudge so long that it has grown and grown and grown and it's all you can see. I want to help you. Before you come up to this altar and pray, I'm just going to, I'm just going to let you come at your leisure. I'm not going to have a big formal altar service. I know I've preached a long time. I'm just going to, I'm going to give you an antidote for the poison, Okay. Go ahead and put all four of them up there if you would. Because this is how you get free. Pastor, it can't be this simple. It absolutely is this simple. The first thing you have to do is admit that you are offended and hurt. Well, I wouldn't be offended if they had No, 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 no. Offense cannot be taken or given. It has to be taken. So I understand you don't appreciate what they did. I understand that. But you have to admit that you let the offense in. Admit you're offended and hurt. That's step one. Step two, open your heart for God to heal. Some of you have come to church for years, but you've never, ever let the Holy Spirit come in and do what He does best, which is mend broken things back together. Because you don't understand what life would feel like without that offense controlling every. You love, your spirit is in love with Jesus, but your soul is so encapsulated by all the offense and the hurt and the wounds. The Bible says he came to undo the works of the devil. That's his goal. That's his mission. So he's got your soul. He's got you saved. Your, your, your spirit has been revitalized, but he wants to set your soul free. Number three, make the decision to forgive that person of everything they've done. But you don't know what they've done to Listen, Absalom, 11 years later, I didn't, I didn't finish the story. He tried to take David's kingdom. David, who did, couldn't bear to lose couldn't bear to lose another son, left. But Joab, Joab, David's general of his army, he found Absalom in that pretty hair hanging in a tree. And the Bible says Joab took a spear. How many times do I have to show you examples of how bitterness leads to a murderous spirit and you think you're killing them, but it actually kills you? Ahithophel drank his own poison and committed suicide. Absalom drank his own poison and he was ended up killed on the battlefield. You're not hurting them by holding that grudge against them, but you are poisoning yourself. Let it go. Number three. And number four, choose not to let negative thoughts reign any longer because some of you will say, well, I forgive them, but then you immediately start going back and rehearsing what they did to you. You've got to let it go. There's more to forgiveness than just saying, I forgive you, I release you. True forgiveness means I don't revisit the offense. I signed your pardon. If you offended me, I no longer hold you accountable for what you did to me. I release you. And oh, by the way, 
you have that ex example in your life because while you were yet sinners Christ died for the ungodly and when you did not deserve forgiveness all you had to do was say God forgive me and God said of what I threw your sins into the sea of forgetfulness as far as the east is from the west I no longer hold them against you and if he did it for you right do you have to hold back from giving it to them now that you've got this in your spirit how many of you need to come and let it go this morning I'm not going to have a big long drawn out altar call because this is totally between you you and the Lord if the spirit's drawing you you need to come up here and spend some time in prayer and say God I'm releasing them right now God I, I'm, a, I'm offended I am hurt I want you to heal my heart I, I don't want to carry this out of this room today I, I want to be whole when I leave here I'm making a decision I'm making a conscious decision this morning to forgive this person and call out their name while you're in this altar this morning say I forgive Joni I forgive William I forgive Brian call their name out make it a conscious effort to say I forgive them they may not be here they may not even be alive but you're going to set them free today. I forgive them. And I will not go back. I will not return. Negative thoughts are not going to rule my life any longer. Prayer team, if you can come up and start praying with some of these that's here in the altar. I want to see Jesus. I don't want to see that offense any longer. I don't want to see the hurt. I don't want to see the ones. I, I want to see Jesus. That's all I want to see. I let them go. I release them. All the hurt, all the agony, I let it go. I want to see Jesus. I want to see.